0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Leroy Torres. Torres served in the U.S. Army Reserve for 24 years and spent a year on duty in Balad, Iraq. When he returned home, he discovered he had sustained several physical injuries that were unrelated to combat.
1: My name is uh, Leroy Torres. I was a captain in the Army Reserve. Uh, I served for, uh, for 23 years uh, until I was medically retired. Uh, I was a logistics officer at first uh, going, going way back. Or I was medically retired as a, as a captain in Army Reserve, but I was uh, prior service. I mean, my, my uh, connection with, with the military goes back to my childhood. Uh, wanted to join the military when I was, uh, since elementary, my dad served in the Korean War. My dad was drafted during the Korean War, and uh, I always uh, saw my dad as my hero. Uh, he inspired me uh, to be in the military, and that's one thing since I was uh, you know elementary, I wanted to, to join the Army. And also to work uh, as a state trooper. I had already made up my mind as a child. That's what I wanted to do later on in life, in my careers. I joined uh, at 17. I was still in high school. When I joined the military, I joined the Army National Guard. I remember I was uh, I, had a, I was already talking to two uh, recruiters when I was 16 years old and I wanted to join as, as early as I could. So it was a, a trying season for for my mom because uh, since I was I'm the youngest, my mom had a difficult time, you know, uh, signing off for me since I was underage. But it was something that I, I wanted to do since as a child. And I, I enlisted. I remember December 9th of 1989. I enlisted in the Army National Guard, and I completed my, my junior year of uh, high school. And uh, within a week, I was already at Fort Benning, Georgia at basic training uh, following my junior year. And throughout that time, I, I, you know, of course, finished my basic training. I came back to finish my senior year in high school and still attended my battle assemblies throughout, throughout the year. And then as soon as I graduated from, uh, from high school, but then a week again, I was back at Fort Benning for my uh, advanced individual training for infantry school there at Fort Benning, Georgia again. Even serving uh, part-time <clears throat> in the National Guard, there was still, I didn't feel complete. Like I wanted to, to go active duty. So I had a, uh, a four year scholarship to the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, I finished one year and I was in ROTC and actually uh, to a quick story, Uh, My one of my my professors said, MS professor said, hey, uh, I want you to promise me one thing. I want you to finish college once you finish your active duty. But, uh, you know, I kept bothering them. I want to go active duty. And they were trying to say, well, just wait till you finish your four years. But, you know, I was so uh, determined to serve active duty. And uh, March of 1992, I went active duty uh, through December of 1996. I almost went back active duty because I didn't get selected. With uh, the State Police Academy. Uh, actually, I applied three times to the Academy. And that that first time I applied, I was still on active duty. Well, I come back home and uh, I didn't get accepted. So what I did, I, I joined the reserves uh, two months after. So February of 1997, I'm already in the reserves because I almost went back active duty because I missed it so much. In April of 97, I was already on a humanitarian mission in uh, Central America, in Belize. I spent two weeks down there already because I had my Sergeant Major knew like, man, I know you, you have it, it's in your blood, you're ready to really do some active duty time. So so he sent me on that humanitarian mission. But throughout that time, through 97 uh, and not until 1998, when I was finally accepted, and at the same time, I kept the promise to my prof- my uh, military professor. I went back to school, back to college. I, I started uh, attending classes while I was uh, uh, working at a, at a correctional facility. And then in 1998, I was accepted to the state trooper academy. Mm-hmm. So throughout my uh, my time as a state trooper, they allowed me to to uh, still attend my battle assembly uh, during the, those uh, 26 strenuous weeks of training. And fortunately, I was I was uh, ended up stationed back in Corpus Christi, uh, Texas. So this is back to 1999. So throughout these years, I'm, I'm serving in the, in the the reserves. Well. In 2001, uh, 9/11, uh, I remember I was in uh, El Paso, Texas, and I was actually I was visiting my uncle who was uh, he was terminally ill, and I remember seeing the uh, the news that morning, and I tell you what, just my heart rate just, uh, I just couldn't wait to get back, and, and I was already serving as a state trooper, and minutes after the attacks, I, remember, I received a phone call from my agency. That I had to come back to Corpus Christi because since we we have a uh, the port of Corpus Christi, we were on on alert. Uh, our tactical team was was placed on alert with the state police. So uh, I tell you what, it was something that just really uh, motivated me, even like me at that time, like man, I'm ready to go and serve uh, if if you know duty calls and, you know, to be activated. I was ready to go, but it was really a, a moment that uh, I felt that I, I needed to be with my my brothers and sisters who were about to answer the call, but it was uh, definitely a, a a moving time in my life when whenever I, I received the news about the 911 attacks. I was born in Corpus, so I grew up in Corpus Christi. Uh, I was born in Corpus, and actually, I uh, I graduated from, from the DPS Academy in 1999, and that was my first duty station. That was my only duty station. So for 14 years, I I served to DPS. I was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas. I was enlisted at the time, and uh our commanding general came down. This is back in maybe in two thousand one. He uh, he came down to to our unit, and actually my sergeant major approached me. say said, "Hey, uh, I want you to to uh, take uh, the CG. I want you to be his driver, and take him down to to the valley, which is to the border or border units, which is about two hours south from uh, from Corpus." And one of the first things that the the general asked me, he said, uh, I was a staff sergeant. He goes, staff sergeant, is there any reason you're not an officer? <laughs> and it said, uh, my, my, my BC is there, commander. and he goes, uh, well, sir, honestly, I, I just haven't gone back to school. And he says, well, I, I think you'd be a damn good officer. But <laughs> he told me, you'd be a damn good officer. And I, I, I recommend you go back and, and, uh, and do that. And I'll tell you what, that next semester, I, I was, that, that's what I went back to, to start, roll back in college. And uh, once I, I earned my degree. Uh, the 95th Division was actually offering direct commissions at the time. Since I already had my degree, I just went before a board in uh, Oklahoma City, Texas. The board, I, I passed it with flying colors. And uh, lo and behold, uh, December of 2000, I was uh, granted my, my commission as a second lieutenant, which is pretty awesome. So, but actually, I, I ended up at a unit in San Antonio, Texas with 95th Division. Uh, I was, I worked in the brigade. Uh, I was, uh, that, my, my, branch was, uh, was, I was uh, AG, Adjutant general branch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually working in uh, the, they put me in the brigade S1, which was, uh, to me, was, was an experience working for a, a Fulberg colonel. It was it was pretty awesome. as my first uh, assignment as a first lieutenant. But thankfully, mm-hmm. my prior service, it was a very, uh, uh, my experience as, as enlisted was a huge, huge help. You know, in serving and uh, the way I just uh, approached soldiers and the way we worked together, it was just amazing as uh, that was my first uh, duty assignment as a commission officer. I was uh, deployed to balad Iraq in 2007, and uh, I was at that time, I was already a first lieutenant. And initially, I was supposed to go to Afghanistan, uh, received uh, the phone call. I'll never forget. I was at a coffee shop with with my dad. and. Uh, I had just taken him to, to the, VA, the VA clinic and we're sitting at the coffee shop. And uh, he goes, and so it's great that you haven't been uh, activated. Not even five minutes, my phone rings. And it's uh, <laughs> my wife, I said, uh, hey, your number's been called. So you've been activated, you're, you're going to Afghanistan. So I walk in back on the coffee shop and tell my dad, you don't believe what just happened. I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm headed. I'm headed east. But uh, my dad says, you know what? It was just a matter of time. <laughs> so that this was in uh, 2007, uh, November of 2007, a, w- a week before Thanksgiving. I arrived in Balada, Iraq. And I remember stepping off that shuttle. And one of the first questions, and, and, and me working in law enforcement, I mean, I ask a lot of questions. I'm very observant. One of the first things, like, man, what is that smell? So what is that stench in the air? And, oh, that's just, that's the burn pits where they, they burn all, all the waste. I'm like, man, that's like a landfill. I mean, you know, we normally people say it's a burn pit. You, you picture a, you know, a, not a significant hole or just in the ground where they, they burn the waste. But when I went and, and I, I saw this uh, from, of course, from a distance because it, it, was, it was all fenced and, and it was secured, I said, man, this thing is massive. And I remember I began to ask questions as to about, the burn pit is. Hey, is this uh, is this legal? I mean, are they following EPA guidelines? And of course, they would say, "Well, it's not like, in other words, we stay in our lane. That's that's handled by the contractor, so we don't worry. you don't worry about that." So pretty much, we just we uh, you know stayed in our lane. That's that's what we were told to do. But a burn pit is uh, just uh, imagine a, a landfill size uh, a ballad. Iraq had the largest burn pit in, in Iraq. It was approximately 10 acres in diameter. Uh, so this was this this large, this huge pit landfill oil, where they would burn all. Just imagine everything that's thrown into the trash, plus uh, medical waste, amputated body parts from the Balad Hospital, was just set ablaze with jet fuel and burned. Uh, from plastic bottles to styrofoam equipment. So you name it, everything that was stolen in the trash was uh, was stolen in that pit. That was with JPA fuel and lit on fire, and it burned 24-7. So at times, you would see the, the of smoke. I mean, sometimes it would be, it'd be darker times, depending on what they were burning. I was within a mile from this burn pit, and even our – the uh, at, at that time, I'm, I was assigned to a logistics unit. Our work area was even closer to the burn pit. And every time you can even taste that the smoke, just this nasty scent in your mouth. And, and it's a stench. Even at times, uh, if I smell something, I'm like, man, it smells like, it reminds me, it takes me back to that stench. But thinking of a burn pit, mean, this this thing was massive. And uh, I've talked to other folks like, man, when you mentioned burn pits, we thought it was just like a, you know, maybe like an eight foot diameter hole in the ground where they burn waste. No, this, just imagine, you know, 10 acres of just, waste being burned constantly. This is 24-7. This burn pit was how it was maintained. But, but you name it, everything that was disposed. And, and to know that, no no telling what all was thrown in there, that included the, the medical waste from the hospital. I mean, just to think that we were inhaling and ingesting, you know, these toxic fumes, no wonder that it's taking a toll on our bodies. But a month after I was there, December 30th. I still remember because I kept my sick hall slip. And I remember going to the, uh, to the medical clinic to to the, for urgent care. I was uh, having uh, these coughing spells like dry cough, but like sinus issues. Well, when uh, I saw the, uh, the physician go say, yeah, you're, you're, you're dealing with the Iraqi crud. He goes to your, your body's just adjusting to the environment. I'm like, okay. I said, uh, you know, okay, I'll will give it that. So they, they quarantined me for seventy-two hours. Um, I had a stomach bug and uh upper respiratory infection put me on ZPAC. And I got over it. It took me about maybe about two weeks to get over that. But I noticed that uh, throughout my deployment, I, I, I continued to have issues, especially after I was uh come back from physical training. We would go run with with our section and uh the stadium they had their ballot, and I would come back and I would just have this drainage from my, from my sinuses from my, my nose and I'd be taking a shower and it just did this set would just be coming out of my, 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 sinuses. And, uh, I said, Hey, I don't know. It's like this the environment. So I said, I think it's, this is uh, taking a toll on us. And so when I told my wife, I said, yeah, I, I cause she even, uh, as I, I was talking to her, she said, Hey, uh, you sound like you're raspy or like you're coming down with a cold. I said, no, it's just uh, you know, this is brumping at there. They rid of all the waste, they burn all this waste. And so I think that's, that's having an effect on us. But that, that's just how, how my, my journey started. Uh, then I started having these uh, waking up with headaches. This is already going back maybe halfway through my deployment. I started having these uh, waking up with headaches. And I noticed that uh, they were getting worse. And then the respiratory infections started. I started having the, the issues again with my, like these flare ups. So I ended up going back to the TMC again, put me on ZPAC. The same thing. while well, you're dealing with a, a respiratory infection. I said, Well, this has already been here for months. And I said, Is this still the Iraqi crowd? I said, Well, it's just, you know, everybody's different. Your body's just dealing with, with, with some changes, but here's some ZPAC medication. Uh, so it was like the same thing over and over. I remember at the end of my deployment, towards the end, I, uh, I started having like these tremors. Uh, my hands were shaking. The thing is, I didn't go with my my unit. I was an individual augmented, so I didn't know anybody in this unit. So during that time, uh, as we connected with my unit, I, I would ask questions and say, hey, are you are you feeling any issues with me? oh, yeah, the the hacking cough and issues that they have been dealing with as well. But I noticed that I started having these tremors when i it it took me about uh, a few months to finally this just went away, these tremors when I came back. But I remember coming back and three weeks later, I was in the emergency room and I had a horrific uh, upper respiratory infection. And one of the first things the doctor asked me, hey, have you been around any chemicals? You've been exposed to anything? I said, well, I was in Iraq. I only, I've been back for about three weeks. I was around these burn pits where they burn waste. So, and then he goes, okay, I'll be right back. The doctor comes back with, he put a, he comes back with a mask. And that's when I started kind of flags raising up but like you know what there's something I believe that that uh, affected me you know from the exposure to these burn pits and I, I remember uh, they sent me home and I told my wife you know what I, I think uh, uh, I'm going to have some some issues here in the future and I'm going to back up a little bit I remember before I left Balad Iraq uh, I was handed a memo from a uh, Curtis, Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel. And it talked about the hazards of burn pits in Balad, Iraq. And when I received that memo, that's when I knew, like, okay, I know where this is going. (laughs) I said, this is for your medical record. And I knew, I said, you know what, there's going to be be some issues we're going to deal with. And sure enough, that sixth sense that I always had throughout my deployment, uh, I remember I even telling my wife, Oh, one thing my wife noticed when I came back home, she says, I noticed that you sleep with the sheets over your head. I said, well, I, I I use that as a kind of as a filter, you know, because I noticed when I would wake up uh, in the mornings and I'd go outside my my uh, housing unit, there was this set on the on the AC unit, and I would just wipe it, and it was just like this chalky residue from from the, and I said, this is this is from the carpet, this, this is crazy, and and everybody I would, I would ask questions there in my unit or people that I, that I came in contact with said, oh yeah, it's just from the carpets, you know that they're they burn a lot more uh, of the, the waste at night. So we're, we're, it's, we're inhaling, we're taking this stuff in. Once I received that letter and I came back home and then I ended up in the emergency room, I told my wife, you know what? This is not gonna be good here in the future. Uh, things that I'm gonna have to be dealing with. And, and sure enough, I went back to work finally. My, uh, my dad was terminally ill when I came back from Iraq. So he was in the hospital for four months. So I, I spent a lot of time with my dad before he passed. So I didn't go back to work till, this is back till uh, March of 2009. Because I came back in November of 2008, March of 2009, I'm back at work. And I remember waking up with the headaches, having the the raspy voice. And that's one thing that I, to this day, I deal with. And my wife's like, it sounds like you have something in your throat, like you always have... Uh, like, you're congested. I said, well, I'm having sinus issues. But I, when I was played off, because my fear was I did not want to lose my my job as a, a, you know, as a state trooper. Because this was my, it was my childhood dream. And I didn't want to lose my job. And, and that was, that was the fear that I always had. And uh, so, in our generation, our era in the Army was the Model A second of drive-on. And that's what I did. That's what I did. I would wake up with these excruciating headaches. Oh my God! I was pounding so much Tylenol uh, just to, before I go to work, just trying to, to uh, suppress the pain. And then, there again, I ended up going to urgent care with the uh, the, the ups. And again, oh yeah, you you're, you're dealing with upper respiratory infection. Here's another Z-Pack. And it's like every couple of weeks, I ended up going to urgent care for 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 treatment. In 2010, August of 2010, I remember I was transferred. To the driver's license uh, office, it was in a promotion. It was uh, just a take a break from the highway. they uh, they put me on on Monday through Friday schedule, which was it was it was good, so I could spend more more family you know time with family. so it, it was a good move, you know uh, for me and my family. so I, I was working Monday through Friday, but I was working in in an office environment while I started having these flare- ups a lot more. Of course, uh, later I found out that that building had mold. Fears years later I found out. I told my wife, man, it's like I'm always sick when I when I'm at work. I, I feel worse and the headaches are worse. Well, August of 2010, my, my sergeant he came in the office. He goes, Hey, uh, goes, man, you you have been you've been coming in with this horrific cough and you have to work with the public here. People are starting to ask questions. And I said, Maybe you're contagious, and we know you were in Iraq, so you need to address the issue because at that time I had already started, uh, I was missing work. And uh, because of, of of these issues, I was out sick, like with a cold. It's like, you, you, you seem to always be getting these, these, these recurring colds. You need to get checked out. And sure enough, they sent me home. They actually, they told me to leave. I said, you, you need to go home and you cannot return to work until you have answers. Well, August of 2010 is when our journey began, uh, seeking for answers and as to what was going on with me. The I began to have shortness of breath, and uh, I'm going to back up a little bit, and uh, the summer of 2009, it was summer of 2009, I was in a foot pursuit, and I remember once I apprehended the suspect, I I started having a lot of chest pressure, and I remember I, I had to take a knee, and I mean, we were one-man units, so backup usually took 15 minutes you know, so like, oh. by the time backup arrived, uh, I I had the guy in custody, and and I remember the uh, officers that, that, that backed me up. Because man, are you okay? I said, man, I, I don't know. I just I felt lightheaded. Uh, I I thought I was having a stroke. I just felt a lot of pressure in my chest. It, it took me, my goodness, probably maybe 15, 20 minutes. I just had to sit it out for a little while, and that's when I noticed like there's something wrong. That that uh, said something's going on in, in my with my lungs. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I mean, we, we went to Brook Harbor Medical Center, went to Wilford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, went to Audie Murphy VA Hospital. And they looked at me like, man, it's, maybe it's in my head. And I remember going to, uh, to Bader University Hospital in Houston. And this, the, the doctor gave me psych meds. And he passed my back. He goes, this is going to help you relax. And that's when I, I just I walked out of the office. And, and at this time, I'm already frustrated because we couldn't find answers. And I took that piece of paper and I just, I balled it up. And I, I told my wife, you know what, let's go. You know, we're not getting nowhere but with uh, finding answers to what's wrong with me. Because it couldn't pinpoint my uh, my pulmonary function tests were normal. And at that time, my wife started connecting with families uh, on uh, social media. And met with these uh, families that were also, as, hey, about, she started researching about burn pits. And sure enough, we, she connected with families. We connected with Dr. Robert Miller out of uh, Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University Hospital. Well, Dr. Miller was already doing research for, for years. Uh, he was uh, seeing soldiers from the 101st Airborne Division that had been exposed to the sulfur fires in Iraq and also to burn pits. And he had already done like so many, uh, maybe like 49 lung biopsies at the time. And I think all of them, but two, were all positive for constrictive bronchitis. And when my wife found Dr. Miller, I said, you know what, we're going to go see Dr. Miller. And of course, we go to the VA. Thankfully, uh, Dr. Uh, Figueroa at the time, he was in Iraq, so he knew what I was talking about. But as far as a lot of other physicians I know, maybe it's anxiety, or maybe I was developing asthma, just everything else, but nothing to do with, with birth exposure. Well, in in the fall of 2010, this is around maybe September of 2010, uh, the VA, I finally get approved to go to the War-Related Illness and Injury Center in Washington, D.C. So they admit me to the hospital. I'm in there for four days. And on my discharge, the the chief pulmonologist, their findings were you do have shortness of breath, but it's unknown etiology. So my wife at that time has already connected with families. She's aware that some, some, uh, veterans have already passed away from unexplained, uh, either from different types of cancers, leukemia, and which the family, is, and this has to be connected to birth exposure. Well, at that time she asked the doctor, well, why, well, I want a lung biopsy. I want you for, for you to do a lung biopsy on my, on my husband. because." He needs answers. He can't go back to work until we have answers. And of course, the, their response, well, we're not equipped to do biopsies. It's one thing that we cannot, uh, we don't have the resources to do that here at this facility. I said, but you're the, the war Related Illness Injury Study Center. You're supposed to be capable of doing that. Of course, so, so that was another door closed for us. Um, and at that time, my wife had, has, had already been talking to Dr. Robert Miller in, uh, at Vanderbilt University Hospital. And November 16th, of 2010, I was already, uh, that's when I had my lung biopsy there at, at the Vanderbilt Hospital. And I'm going to back up a little bit. Before, on our initial visit, he goes, I'm not going to recommend the biopsy because just from your symptoms and the CT scan did show air trapping on your lower lobes of your lungs, I could pretty much guarantee that you have constricted bronchitis. But because... You're telling me that your job needs answers and we'll have to move because it's, it's an invasive procedure it's painful and i'll tell you what that was it took a year for me to recover from that lung biopsy but i couldn't lay on my right side for a year because of the they took um in three areas of course one was for the chest tube but they cut me in two other areas and they, they took a small wedge in my lower lobe and uh, my lower lobe of my lung and that's when they discovered that uh when the the surgeon walked in the next, the next day, and I came to, and he showed me the, the picture of my lungs. And he asked me, and I said, are you a, are you a, are you a smoker, sir?" I said, no, sir. i never smoked in my life. And he showed me the lungs. I like, I could see like inflammation. And, and the way he was explained to me, he goes, you have uh, peribronchial fibrosis. You have constricted bronchitis, But uh, yeah, you have a lung injury. And this is from exposure, toxic exposure. And I remember before I was operating room, my, my wife was, her words to me, she said, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna make your promise. She says, I'm gonna fight for you. She says, no matter what the outcome is. And uh, she said, and she was crying to that. No matter what the outcome is, I'm gonna fight for you because you're not gonna be the last one that's gonna go through this. It's gonna be many more. And, uh, you know, going back over a decade, Uh, She kept her promise, but that was uh, difficult for me to, to accept because I already knew the first thing I thought about, I'm going to lose my job. You know, I was one of the first things that I thought, and I said, this is my childhood dream. So I I started, you know, having a lot of, uh, um, very, uh, difficult season in my life once knowing that it was a, when the the, the doctors explained to me, this is a permanent condition is irreversible and that even it may progress later in life. So, uh, of course, we come back home. Actually, we met a family in, uh, in Nashville. Her, uh, her stepson, uh, Ox, Steve Ox, he actually, he was with the 101st and he, he passed away around 2008. But she, uh, uh, Stacey Pennington, had already been advocating for her brother regarding burn pit exposure, toxic exposure. Well, we connected with that family. Well, they took us in for, for the two weeks that I was there because I couldn't fly back because the doctors were afraid that my lung may collapse. So I had to have family. They traveled to to Tennessee and picked me up and then drove me back. But but we, we were there for two weeks. So I didn't get back home till, actually we spent Thanksgiving on the road on uh, 2010, Thanksgiving 2010, which was difficult because we couldn't see our kids. Finally made it back home. And uh, this was a, a time that I was afraid to, um, to talk to my, my agency because I, I, I knew that I, they were going to just kind they, they of secure my job at that time. And sure enough, I come back home. You know, I, I talk to my supervisor say, I have a permanent condition. I have a lung injury associated because of birth exposure, toxic exposure. So I need a job accommodation. I, I said, I can't come back to work. I can't fulfill my duties. Well then my my service captain comes back and says, Well, this is let's see what we can do for you. But this is like in twenty end of twenty ten. I go back to work twenty eleven. Um I'm put on light duty. Well, it was just temporary. Uh, I go through twenty eleven, I, I start of course start missing work again. The headaches get worse. Uh I remember one time I was on. Uh, I was there at the office, and uh, I was in so much pain that I had to go and check myself in at the VA clinic. And uh, they uh, actually, uh, as soon as I get there, they put me on oxygen. And they didn't know what to. I'm sorry, but we don't know. We don't know what to what to do for you. We, we, so that that's when the, our journey started. Also with with the the headaches. As of now, I have over 400 medical visits. Uh, since I've been back, and, and the routine for me, the routine uh, that for me to deal with my headaches, I was put on uh, uh, IV meds and oxygen, and I would they would keep me for a few hours. The once uh, the the headaches would diminish, I would be discharged, and here's some pain medication. And that was that was my life with the headaches for ten years, for ten years. I remember uh, in 2018, I was diagnosed with toxic uh, encephalopathy, which is a toxic brain injury. And uh, throughout this time, I just, I told my wife, and I, I don't know what else to do anymore because we can't get answers, but we traveled to Colorado to have a Q-Spec scan. And that's where they discovered uh, this, this brain injury. And throughout this time, I, I noticed that I started having trouble with my, my short-term memory, my cognitive abilities. Uh, I began to have issues uh I, I can i mean i will be talking to somebody and i will lose my train of thought and it was very frustrating uh because even uh, i mean and throughout this day i struggle with it but I, i've learned to cope and that's why I, I i wear this oxygen because uh it's my rescue med for the headaches this is what alleviates the headaches and who would have thought that all i needed was some oxygen to alleviate the headaches so this is what if i use it like i'm supposed to it keeps me out of the you know, having to go to the emergency rooms and those visits. But, uh, you know, that was a long 10 years of waiting for answers because it's the whole time I was given medication for a migraine headache, for migraine headaches. And all this time I had a toxic brain injury. So this was something that, that I dealt with for a long time. You know, here recently, lately I've been having a lot of GI issues. I've been having GI bleeds. Uh, I was in the hospital in January, this past January for uh, pancreatitis. Well they say my pancreatitis was was not functioning four days later, it's back to normal. So the doctor's like, man, this is a mystery. I've been having H. pylori infections for the last two years. I've uh, been on so much treatment. I've been on so many antibiotics that it doesn't treat it. So um, I'm just waiting to go uh, to go to Mayo Clinic uh, to see if they can they can help. But that's uh, I've been dealing with these issues for 10 years these mysterious GI bleeds. 360 inception came about after our personal experience with the delay and denial issue, not only from not not receiving the the specialized health care or even uh, yeah, especially health care, but also the the challenge with my with my job loss. And when my wife, when she told me that as they put me to operating room, made me that promise, she began connecting with families, she created a website. I mean, this is from our, you know, our kitchen know, our home. She <laughs> created a website, went to the list of print, created a website, just printed some brochures. I mean, this goes back uh, in 2010. I remember being discharged from that World Related Illness injuries Study Center. And we were wheeling our luggage down the hallways of Congress following our, our my discharge. And she was handing out brochures that she had printed about talking about burn pits, what a burn pit is. So this goes back to, to, uh, to 2010 and I say it's it's passion driven that we made it this far, but when you get a, a group of committed families and brothers and sisters that you served along with and that I've lost some great brothers and sisters uh, because of, of the illnesses that they that they were no longer here. And that, that was one of the, as I explained to some reporters that they have the passing of the PAC deck it was bittersweet because those that walked the hallways of Congress with us were no longer here. They passed away because of these illnesses. But knowing that that uh, Berkowitz 360 and throughout the years, how this started, just, just from, from our, our home kitchen, how it became an advocacy group. And I remember in 2011, there was a, uh, it was a Virginia quarterly review. Malcolm Garcia came and he did a story on us and, and our journey. I mean, this is like, he goes, man, this is, this is grassroots. I said, how I just looking back how, how this started and how far that we have come. But knowing that because of the delay and denial, we got a group of families that came together and we began to advocate. And we began to ask, ask to networking with, with researchers, with Dr. Miller, began to work with him, with Dr. Anthony Zema, who had already been doing research. But it was connecting families with those physicians. My mission was I didn't want these fellow veterans to go through what I went through, through not having answers, to having doors shut in their face, or being told, hey, go, go and build momentum, then come back. But there were so many doors that were closed throughout the years. Uh I remember in twenty seventeen we were at the uh, in DC, we had our first congressional briefing. We were briefing uh staffers, what burn pits are on awareness. And and still, like well, we would put the the content was put out there, but It's like no sound bites. Everything was shut down. Nobody was listening. Well, in looking back, that uh, persistence and when you're passionate about something and and you drive the uh, the key element to stick, you know, to your promise. And and there's promises that I made. I made a promise to my Sergeant Major who passed away in 2014. Sergeant Major Bella. And I remember these promises like that. Whenever I struggled with my health, that I said, you know what, I remember his voice. Said, sir, his voice to me, said, sir, you're, you're, you're going to be our voice when we're no longer here. Just don't give up in this fight because it's going to be a tough fight, but, but don't, so don't give up because you're, you're going to be our voice when we are no longer here. So it was those, those moments that inspired me to continue my fight, to continue the advocacy throughout the years. But in seeing the, how this came about here to the, the passing of, of, of the Act, how much work and effort, but that democracy works. That it, it works, and when you get a group of veterans, I mean, those I believe those, those values that you were taught in the military, like the army, the soldier's creed. There's two lines that always stick to me: it says I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. And those those two lines. I tell my wife, you know what? Till the good Lord calls me, or you know, as long as I wake up with a breath. And there's times that I. I you know, like yesterday, I was having a, a tough day yesterday with, with the headaches. I was having a, a difficult day But to my wife. And I wake up every day, I regroup and drive on, continue to, to press on this issue and bring the continued awareness for those that, that need the help. But here a few days ago, there was a veteran that shared a, a testimonial where he was, uh, he was so grateful. He goes, I'm so glad to see this pack. He said, I was finally granted my, my VA compensation. Uh, just for for his privacy, you know the the group, the advocacy group, they sent us a video. But it was awesome to hear from this one veteran. And, and one thing he said he goes, "Well, now, but I don't have to worry if if I pass, that my children will be taken care of." So that that brought a lot of peace to me. That so many are will be helped now that have been struggling like I struggled for over over these ten years. Thankfully, my VA case was finally approved after a couple of years. But because the army did their own investigation. The army did a line of duty investigation, and it was revealed that due to an instrumentality of war, that they discovered that my lung injury was due to burn exposure. And if it had not been for that, you know, who knows how long it would have taken for me to get that approval. But but that's it's been so brings so much peace and um, this joy that now these veterans are not left out there in the cold. That now they they can submit their claims and get the help that they need. Staff Sergeant Will Thompson, double lung transplant survivor. We worked together and uh, he was part of the panel of that congressional briefing in 2017. Him and his family walked the hallways of Congress in 2017. In 2018, uh, he was a great brother. And no matter in in what condition he was in, he said, brother, uh, if I can speak, I'm going to I'm going to represent, I'm going to represent, Pistone, 60, and, you know, our fellow brothers and sisters. And it's just this, man, it's, he's had this heart of gold, but that's Sergeant Will Thompson, rest in peace. Uh, you know, unfortunately he, he passed away here December of last year, but just knowing, uh, actually, uh, at the, at the Pact Act, um, once uh, the first vote, when the Senate, uh, it passed the Senate the first time. I remember going to that press conference, and and uh, I had his uh, his, his wife Suzanne sent me a real nice card, a thank you card, and had his picture, and actually had that on my on my binder and that and that, uh, on my smart book that I carry with me, and I was sharing with people and I said, "Man, this is why we are here today for people like my brother, son, this Will Thompson. who's no longer here, but you know what? His legacy lives on because he fought so hard for us. Uh, his last testimony that he gave." To the uh, the Veterans Committee there in Congress, he he had to zoom because he was already he was not doing well, but uh, he still said, you know what, I'll still testify, and he gave his statement. So it's people like Steph Sergeant Thompson, and uh, I, I didn't get to meet first class Keith Robinson, but I met his wife, you know, and his daughter, and, and oh my God, uh, is is uh, his mother-in-law. Susan, just amazing advocate. Actually, I met her in uh, 2017. Also, at the congressional briefing—that's when we first met uh, Susan. It was just amazing to to connect. But working all these years, these past you know five years with those advocates have just made a tremendous impact in our lives. Knowing that when you put your uh, your thoughts together and when you come together with this passion, that no matter how many doors close on you. You know, like in the second vote when it didn't pass, that it was a moment that we were going to quit. We had veterans out there. Actually, my wife stood out there at the Capitol steps for five days. She was out there with, with you know, during that fire watch, veterans that came together. You know, we have uh, Tim Jensen from Grunstad who was out there and said, "Man, we're gonna, we're gonna stand with you. We're gonna stand united and peacefully." They advocated out there and, and protesting and just showing the support. Actually, all, all the signs that they had out there, they gave them to my wife so we can uh, bring back it as, and, and to have them as mer- memorabilia from that pack back, from the passing and all those days that they spent out there in the capital. But just seeing that the the, the the potential that, that was there, that we were victorious and we, we didn't give up on that fight.
0: That was Captain Leroy Torres, to learn more about him and Burn Pitts 360, visit burnpits360.org. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors In Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars, Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors In Their Own Words.